Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, inclusive design. It's STEM for those of us who keep number two pencils number one in our hearts. <laughs> I love number two pencils. Did you ever have like a lucky pencil for tests? Oh, yes. But mine was ever, whichever one was the sharpest was the luckiest. Mm. Like it just changed every time. <laughs> I cannot stand to have a halfway sharpened pencil. Like do not bring me any of that slightly dull garbage. I need the sharpest, finest, can't even see the tip pencil. <laughs> does feel better. I don't know why, but it does. I have a little a ceramic figurine of a snail. And because of this show now, <laughs> when I look at things around my house, I think, why do snails have shells? And instead of that being just a passing thought that I have and never do anything with, I then I'm like, I should look it up for the oh. podcast. <laughs> Wait, can you tell me about your figurine? How big is it? Does it have a name? Where did you get it? <laughs> it does not have a name. I bought it on eBay. Um, it is two inches long, one inch high. I, we should name it. It's a good name for a snail. I mean, I don't want to suggest Shelly, but that's the first <laughs> thing that came to my mind. But you should come up with your own name. Well, this is perfect, actually, because I looked up then where do snails' shells come from? And what I learned is that snails start out with a tiny beginning of a shell and they have to eat calcium to grow it. So the first thing they do is eat the egg shell that they were hatched from. That gives them some calcium and then they have to seek out more in nature to grow their shell further. Oh, I'm just picturing like a tiny, tiny snail with the tiniest <laughs> little shell. I think snails are very cute. I do too. Shelly is so cute. <laughs> Um, we have a very special guest for Storytime yes. this week. Uh, you've seen her on The Walking Dead. You've seen her on Sorry for Your Loss and on Good Trouble. It is Brianna Venskis, my friend. <laughs> She's going to be helping us share the story of a midwife that became vital to an entire community. So, yes. And we're also talking to Camila Chiriboga, who's a young designer from Ecuador who wants to make clothes more inclusive, specifically for people with disabilities. So we talked to her about some of her projects, like redesigning a hospital gown and designing clothing for people who are blind and visually impaired. Yeah. So she sees her work as the intersection of fashion, health and technology. So we get into that. You know, but more than anything, I feel like we're just kind of getting in the head of a young person who's experienced her own issues with clothes because what we wear is literally not designed to work for everyone. So true. All right. Let's get to our interview with Camila Chiriboga. I read in one piece that you see clothing as an intersection of fashion, health and technology. And to me, they seem like very different worlds. So how do they come together in your mind? In my mind, because 
I knew I had a certain health condition. I wanted to know how clothing could help my health as well for other people who have different physical conditions, how it can help their physical bodies with easier mobility, with elements that can help if they have any tactile or dexterity conditions or limitations. And then with technology, how can expand, for example, like audio, connecting audio and clothing to be able to describe to people what your garments are, as well as through, for example, vibrations for people to navigate spaces that are inserted in different garments they wear. And if you feel comfortable and you do not have to, if you don't want to, um, can you describe the health condition and how it has affected your relationship to clothes? Yeah, so I have a kidney disease. And so that has affected more than anything just because I visit the doctor a lot. So I have to have blood drawn at least once a month. And so sometimes when I go to the doctor, I'm like, oh, no, I forgot to use short sleeve and it was a really cold day and now they won't be able to draw blood. So, for example, that was a whole thing. I did shirts that are easier to to draw blood to go to your doctor appointment days. And then, of course, being in the hospital when I've had surgery and not being able to put my clothes on, not being able to move that well. So how do you put on clothing and take off clothing in an easier manner? And and what is your relationship with hospitals, given that, you know, you have to go to the doctor frequently and you've you've had surgeries? I love hospitals. <laughs> I don't think really I've ever heard that yet. response. I Tell us more. Please do. <laughs> I love going to the doctor. Like it's just it's just a time where I can just sit and I, I feel kind of relaxed because I'm like, okay, at least someone is checking me. They know what's happening in my body. Like if something weird happens and I'm not checked by my doctor all the time, I was like, oh no, I have no idea how to deal with certain things. But um so I love going into the doctor and Weirdly, because we had to go to the hospital so much due to my dad's condition as well. As a kid, like my one of my favorite foods are like the really bad hospital uh, chicken soups. I love it. Like it's so many childhood memories. <laughs> um, going back to why you do what you do. And um, do you remember when you felt first felt drawn towards designing clothes? Yeah, so designing clothes, I think, ever since I was a kid, like running through my dad's factory. My dad is a tailor and my grandfather would import export textiles from Italy and the Middle East. I just like pick up scraps of clothing and try to build anything I could. Um, And then I got because I had like I was lucky to have my dad who had a factory. I got an industrial sewing machine when I was eight years old. Wow. So I was like (laughs) driving this machine (laughs) when I was a tiny child. Wow. Yeah, so that was that was really fun. They first had a one of the seamstresses help me because they were worried I'd like chop off my fingers or something. But then Fair. but yeah, Fair. so then ever since like I've been sewing everything I could and like building things. I like like 3D building stuff. Mm. Mm. So let's talk about your design process a little bit. I have heard you describe it as human-centered. Uh, now what does that mean from a design perspective? Yeah, so human-centered is focusing on a person's lived experience or a group of people's lived experience to be able to design. So not just imagining someone, but actually being with them. So for example, for one of my projects, when I designed for blind and visually impaired individuals, I visited a center of elderly people who are mostly blind and visually impaired. So going into the art classes, they're For example, they had history classes, seeing how they interact between each other at the cafeteria, for example. Then 
for the same experiencing different kinds of ages. So working with a little baby who was blind and visually impaired, being with her and her mom and have her do different activities, accompany her to the park. Then with a teenager who was also visually impaired. So I accompanied him into class. I accompanied him around the street, going out to eat with him, then going to, with him to his daily job to see all of those interactions. Because sometimes to design, it's about like, it's searching, kind of searching for challenges. So it's not like, oh, we have a problem. It's like, okay, what are the things that could be improved? And maybe it's sometimes like how they button their shirt or sometimes it was like, oh, how they button the cuff. And like little details that someone would have not been able to express and I would have never been able to imagine. So it's kind of that bridge and observing someone and asking them about their day-to-day situation, but also being there to observe yourself and find those links that can improve design. Yeah, I I thought Mm -hmm. it was so interesting to hear about working with specific people and observation. Yeah, I think sometimes it can feel like clothing is limited, like a shirt is just a shirt. It's not political. It's not a health statement. And that's wrong. You know, that's not... Shirts were designed for a particular reason, you know, even uh, just a what we consider a plain T-shirt. If you look, there's uh, often an extra band around the collar that allows it to stretch over your head, but also reinforces this particular hole. There is design here. And so in order for us to progress, we're going to have to start looking at what is design and stop taking it as a given Mm. and see what design can actually do. I would love to hear about the hospital gown uh, you designed. That was a super, super fun project. Um, And I met one of my best friends during that project. So it was fun because we couldn't just sit down in the class and design, but we had to go visit like two or three hospitals. We had to meet with hospital directors and nurses and patients every single week. We'd meet with them. And so we did more than 70 samples. And I even tested out on some of my visually impaired friends. And so to make sure they could also put it on independently and easily. And that was really interesting. And now the hospital gowns are sold and they're used in hospitals in New York City. Can you talk to us about what was different about your design or what you discovered through talking to all of these different people was an area that you can improve the hospital gown? The first thing people would jump to is like, have my butt covered. (laughs) Like no one wants their butt exposed. (laughs) So it was like, first, first thing. Um, And then how do you get the butt covered in many different ways? Because also nurses need access and quick Mm -hmm. access. Um, You have to go to the bathroom easily. So that was one solution of like having your butt covered. Um, Another thing was people receive the hospital gown in completely different mental and physical conditions. Mm -hmm. So how can you put it on a person if they're unconscious? Like how can a nurse put it on, but how can they put it on themselves as well? So reversible gown, so you can either put it from the back or front and it doesn't matter. Nice. And then another thing that was super important was, have you seen like the little ties that you have to try to put behind your neck and try to tie them? And like, Mm -hmm. they're even super hard, even if you know how to make a nice bow. And so for that, we created hooks. So instead of having to tie it for people with lower dexterity, they can just hook their fingers in and tie that and color matching. So you know what tie goes to what area. The nurses were like, yeah, this makes our life three seconds less, which when you count how many patients they have a day, it really helps. It adds up. Yeah. (laughs) What do you think? Oh, this goes actually to what we were just talking about, um, talking about uh, design, what it's not just about for the person who's wearing the design, but caregivers. You, so you, we just touched on that with nurses. Have you seen that in other projects you've had? 
I worked with a lady who was using a wheelchair and had to be dressed in a lying and sitting position. So I don't know if you guys have seen this machine that lifts people up from their beds and takes them onto their chair. I I was no. amazed. It's like roller coaster every morning. Uh, <laughs> and so, but she had to get dressed in a lying position. So we're like, mm. okay, how do you put like, of course it hurts when they're like tugging on their pants and like trying to stretch it out and pull it. And it depends the person's body proportion, how their mobility works, if they have bruises or anything. So in this in this scene, we had to have some clothing that was easier for the caregiver to put on our client. And her name was Michelle. So for example, she wanted a skirt, but the caregiver is like, oh, she's always cold, put pants in there. So we were like this pants that had a skirt over it. So it looks like a skirt, but it's pants inside. Just mm. like snap it on on top. So kind of that style. But then for example, the jacket, she wanted to be able to put independently because if not, she'd have to wait in the hallways, really cold, and that would get her anxiety levels up. And so she was able to put the jacket on herself. So that was kind of like a half-half talking to the nurses, I went through her dressing experience maybe like four days in a row, just seeing her nurse dress her and undress her and to see how it could be better for a nurse and for herself to do things independently. So I think I'm hearing that when you're designing something, you're thinking about how the clothing would make someone feel. Oh, yeah. In this case, it was very important because like for her, for example, the the situation of not being able to put her jacket like was really detrimental to her mental health. Mm-hmm. Um because she did have some some anxiety and she took medication for that. And so not being able to put something independently was actually affecting her mental health. But for example, with a teenager who was blind and visually impaired, for him looking good meant fitting in in school and giving him confidence to be able to speak to people and to make sure he looks good in the context he's in. So that was kind of like, yeah, you're putting on something physically, but it's giving you more emotional support than physical support in a way. Do you have anything um, that you wear that gives you a, this is a very broad question, but a particular feeling? Hmm. Um, my dad passed away a few years ago and I have um, a sweater of his from high school that has his his name embroidered on the inside of it. And so mm-hmm. um, I don't have a lot of things that were his, but when I wear that, I feel connected to him. That's awesome. Oh, I would love that for my dad. My dad passed away, too. Um, that sounds wonderful. You know, this is not directly related to what we're talking about in this section, but as she was talking about her relationship to her um, her father and her uh, other people in her family who have worked in clothing, my mom sent me um, a box of fabric that had belonged to my grandmother, who was a seamstress and designed a lot of clothes um, for herself and for my um, mom and even for me when I was little. Mm. And I thought it was just uh, fabric that she'd never done anything with. But as I was going through it, I realized that there were some, I saw that she had started some shirts and a skirt that she had never finished. Um, Oh, wow. And so I was thinking about maybe trying to finish those designs and it could kind of be a, a, a collaboration almost with my grandmother who's no longer with us. Um, and so it was making me think of those those family connections that Camila has as well. That's awesome. That is a great idea. Let's talk afterwards if you need any resources to help you with that. Oh, that would be helpful. Let's pause this conversation and take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Hold up. 
Um, you've lived in several different countries, and I would love to hear about how that experience um, has given you insight to different points of view. Yeah, so I most recently, before the pandemic, um, I lived in Japan and Tokyo for two years. And so that really changed the way I think about aging. For example, all around the city was people who are mostly elderly people. And just the way the city is designed for them, it's so different. Um, mm. Just, for example, how the heights of things, the way colors are identified, for example, the even simply the sound at streetlights to be able to cross or not. Like you can't even imagine, but in New York City, there are only two of those streetlights with sounds next to the Centers for Blind and Visually Impaired Individuals. And it's New York, wow. so I would have thought it's more progressive, but it's not. And so that has changed the way I design and just being in a culture completely different, not knowing a language. Then I really applied the observation method of learning, just like everything I could see, um, how they interact, being in meetings where I understood nothing for two hours and just kind of sensing what's happening through people's facial expressions and through their movements. And I think that's a good connection to design because you have to observe the world around you and kind of interpret that and connect ideas without sometimes having first-hand access to ask questions or more research or anything. So um, talking about your designs more specifically, did you have like an aha moment when you realized the ways that tech could further fashion and health? I think so. I think when I was designing clothing for blind and visually impaired, one of the guys that I was working with, his name is Gus Chalkias. So he's a teacher. He's he's visually impaired and he's a teacher of visually impaired uh, children and teenagers who are learning about technology to be able to go into the workspace and to be able to um, interact with their classmates at school and stuff. So when I was talking to him, he was talking a lot about two concepts, so voice and navigation. So he was saying how revolutionary, for example, Alexa and Google Home were for him mm. to be able to navigate his home, to be able to shop and stuff. So that's something I incorporated in my clothing. So audio descriptions of what the garment is, how to wear it. Can I just ask technically, how do you do that specifically? How do you incorporate that into a garment? Yeah, so I created a tags that have tactile and audio components to it. So you can identify. So it's the audio part is through a QR code. So they can just scan it and the audio comes right up like, oh, this is your blue shirt. You should wear it with business pants for it's for a business setting. For example, please wash this in cold water. Hmm. Um, so like how to care for it, what it is and how to wear it. And then the navigation part of it, I was thinking about how like we have Google Maps and Waze and whatever. But for blind individuals, it's not just about long like long distances. It's also about short distances. How do they navigate inside buildings? How do they navigate inside their homes? And also walking around, and especially in New York City, where I was based at. So um, what I did was work with Gus, and we tested out some vibrational. So this technology was created by a different company, but incorporated in my design. So it's a vibration that is placed under the shoes and the soles that tells you where to go. So for example, two vibrations mean right, then three vibrations mean left. And then there's an array of vibrations, but just how vibrations can be a means of communication. And that was giving fashion another dimension. So through tactile, that vibrations, and through audio. And in the design of those shoes, it was a Ecuadorian design, correct? Yes. Yeah, I saw it. They look <laughs> so beautiful. I love yes. them. So um, when I was thinking about the shoes, I've, I've, I always keep my roots. So I designed them the sole. 
that has this technology in it. It's made of a special, um, like a special like hay kind of fiber. Yeah, that is woven to make the soles. And then on the top, it's special woven textile. So it's like a hand-woven textile. And at the, at the beginning, when I chose that style of very traditional Ecuadorian shoe, my professor was like, this is going to be total disconnect. Like people are going to think they're buying these super high-tech shoes. And when they see them, they're like the most traditional looking, mm. like this complete disconnect. But in my mind, it was like tech doesn't have to look like all futuristic and out there. Like you can incorporate it in anything. And that was my heritage. So I wanted to incorporate it in that way. Yeah, I I think that's awesome. This is sort of a silly question, but do you have any colors that you gravitate towards? Oh, yes, definitely blue. Blue and green. Anything I design, and like by default, everything is blue and green. So (laughs) absolutely. Why blue and green? I think I've just liked it because it's like more nature color. Mm. And I've always been surrounded by nature my whole life. Like outside my room, I have like a rainforest. But Wow. um, So yeah. (laughs) But so that's been the colors I gravitate to because of nature, I think. And I was just going to say, working with Gus, for example, he would describe because for them, color is more like a feeling. So I would be like, Mm. okay, what does blue feel for you? And he's like, I think they've told me the sky is blue. So I think it means like freedom and space. And so that also and I was like, what does green mean for you? And he's like, oh, they've told me it's plants. So it's like life and new beginnings and stuff. So that even made me like it even more. Could you tell us in more detail about the tagging system that you created uh, for your clothing line? So at the beginning, when I was, of course, my first intuition was like, oh, yeah, Braille. But then I worked with a, with a professor of uh, blind and visually impaired children, and she herself is visually impaired. And she told me that actually 90% of people who are blind and visually impaired don't know Braille because it's really hard to learn because of the the very acute dexterity that is needed to learn it. And most people become blind or visually impaired once they age. And so they don't have that tactile and dexterity needed to learn it. So she was like, don't don't use Braille at all. I was like, okay, how can we create a more universal system? So I was looking into shapes. Like, what do children learn at school? Like, first you learn shapes, colors, numbers. So I was like, okay, let's stick to that super basic concept. And then how can we build upon it like math? So I took... To describe, for example, color, which is one of the most important things when dressing, it was how do we describe color through shapes? So, for example, circle is yellow, then a square is blue, because B-L-U-E, the four corners, and then a triangle is red, so as like a watermelon slice. So then you have like the taste, the smell, so you can remember that. And then just building upon it like blocks. So a circle that is like the sun, round, plus a square would be green, like the blue and yellow. And so building upon tertiary colors and then a whole color spectrum of having, because it's not just primary and secondary colors, but also the whole spectrum. So what's light blue and dark blue are very different. So with a tactile grade system, which x-axis adding black, y-axis adding light, and how can they easily identify that? And for me, the most important, maybe by describing it sounds pretty complicated, but for me, the most important was that it is as simple as possible. So you mm-hmm. don't have to like learn a new language, but anyone who is sighted or blind or visually impaired can intuitively learn it. Looking forward to work you want to do, are there ideas you have, but the tech isn't there quite yet? You know, is there something that maybe just is you're not able to do quite yet, but you feel like it, it'll in a few years it will be doable? Yeah, I think something that I'm most excited about is like long-term goal 
would be to actually be able to receive your medication through garments. Mm. So just like because the skin is our biggest organ. So and we have clothing on us all day. Like I've just been I take a lot of medication. So I've been thinking like, of course, it affects your stomach and stuff like heartburns and like ugly things like that. But um, but through your skin, you could be receiving it little by little all day. So I've been thinking about how that can happen. Um, right now, I'm kind of working on a project with that, but still just aesthetically with vitamin E materials. Um, so your skin absorbs it little by little. So yeah, that's like maybe the technology is there. I tried. I've tried various things, but um, let's see when it comes. That would be super, super cool because more than just like the physical assistance and like changes for mobility, it would actually be able to give you, for example, things for pain relief or actually vitamins or any medication you need. Wow. And it sort of relates actually to um, some of the early work you did with um, designing for people with diabetes. With mm-hmm. I saw pictures of the openings so that they could um, test their blood sugar and uh, receive their insulin more easily. Yeah. And that with that, I was working with a chemist. I I reached out to her. Okay, so I wanted material that could actually um, know what your blood blood sugar level was instead of mm-hmm. having to like prick yourself and get that little blood drop. So she was saying, for example, if you do it on sportswear, while you're exercising, actually, like the blood is pumping the most. So, for example, in the calf area or around your arm area, if you're doing weightlifting or something, you there are like materials that can get close, not something exactly but that could be monitoring your blood sugar levels through a material that is flat. But yeah, so let's see. What are your goals for the future? I love interacting with people with totally different skill sets as mine, as you've noticed. Uh, So I love engaging in that kind of projects. And also keep designing for different abilities. Each person is a completely different world. And so, yeah, so kind of finding sequences and different um, kind of like a like a researcher of seeing what are different patterns and solutions that can be used across different abilities and include that in the designs I do anywhere I go. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, let's take one last break. Then we've got the story about the lasting impact one midwife had on a rural community in South Carolina. And we're back. It's story time. Story time. Yay. Okay, we have a very special guest this week. Um, She's wonderful. She's been in all of your favorite shows. She's been on Walking Dead, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Sorry for Your Loss, Good Trouble. Please welcome Brianna Metzges. Yeah. What's going on? Hi, guys. (laughs) Hi. Thank you for being with us. Oh, gosh. Thanks for having me. Now, but I was looking at, you actually played uh, a field medic in Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We always like to do, like, kind of our science tech um, Yes, our tie-ins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How was that? Did you like it? Did you get any special training? It was truly traumatizing. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. As in a way. I mean, I'm sorry. Wait, hold on. I did not expect that answer. <laughs> I... Did not know how uncoordinated I was <laughs> until someone told me to run down a hall with a gurney, holding an iPad, checking someone's pulse while also reciting a script that are oh. not my own words. 
Oh, oh gosh, I'm laughing so much. I'm laughing so much. I'm crying. Like, I don't. I Wait. genuinely don't know how they do it on Grey's Anatomy. I don't. I don't. No. I don't know. No. And, and was it so? Was it a lot of medical terms you were having to rattle off as well? Or? So many medical terms, and then on top of it, we're in space. So then it's like <laughs> sure, it's like space, space terms and medical <laughs> terms. Like there's all this stuff that you're just like, this is not. This isn't who I am. <laughs> like this isn't my reality, um, but I guess that's why we signed up for it. Uh, no, but it was great. Once I got it right, granted, you know, the the few times we did it, it was like five or six of us in a scene at the same time too. So like one person would get it right, and the other two people would mess up, and then yeah. three people would get it right, and then the other. It's just you know nature of the beast. But. I'm I'm laughing so much because also I'm ha- I have the same freaking thing that happens to me. And I I'm, bet I'm trying to use that IPA okay to like figure out how to like pronounce. <laughs> these words and I'm like I don't know <laughs> the the phonetic alphabet does not work it don't help you it doesn't help not one bit <laughs> all right should we uh we should we move into this very cool story that we have let's yes. do it Ooh, let's do it okay This is the story of Maud Callan a black midwife and nurse who spent a lifetime helping her community heal You won't find a ton of books or films that document her quietly amazing life. In fact, much of what we know is from a single magazine story. In 1951, Life magazine released its 12-page photo essay, and the headline read, Nurse Midwife, Maud Callan Eases Pain of Birth, Life, and Death. It captured Maud's exhausting but incredible 16-hour workday showing her helping expectant mothers, the injured, and the sick in vivid photography. But let's back up and find out how all of this started. Maud Callan was born in Quincy, Florida in 1898. That's a small city near Tallahassee. Now, she's a big family. She's one of 13 kids. But she ends up being raised by her uncle, Dr. William J. Gunn. Her uncle is actually the very first Black doctor in Tallahassee, It's an incredible achievement because in the decades post-slavery, black people are in critical need of access to many basic necessities, including medical care. But there really aren't very many places they could go, let alone receive medical training to become a nurse or a doctor. So like we said, her uncle becoming a doctor, that's a big deal. He might have even helped spark Maud's initial interest in medicine. Now, Maud eventually decides to go to Florida A&M for college and then completes a course at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Later, she receives support from a church to go to South Carolina as a medical missionary. She ends up in Pineville. Most of Maud's patients are low income with no other access to health care services. She starts working as a nurse and a midwife, delivering babies and performing other medical procedures like setting bones and administering vaccinations. She becomes a vital, vital part of a community and a sole resource of health care to many. It's uh, a lot. She sees patients in their homes and she also does house calls. She also begins training other women to become midwives. The locals begin calling her the Angel in Twilight. Now, it's a bit unclear as to where the nickname comes from, but I found one theory. Maud sometimes needed to make late-night house calls, so she might have gotten the nickname from being a small woman walking through the dark trees with a lantern coming to help someone in need. By 1951, when Life magazine decides to cover her story, she's been working in Pineville for almost 30 years. In those three decades, she's only taken two vacations. She drives about 36,000 miles a year to see patients. 
The feature captures incredibly moving photographs of the lives that Maude touches with her work. A young girl in pigtails walking up to Maude on crutches. A newborn baby, umbilical cord still attached, crying in Maude's arms. There's also imagery showing the reality of her working conditions. At times having to carefully navigate muddy rural terrain on foot, medical bag in hand as she makes her way to see a patient. In the caption of one photo, showing Maude seeing a patient at a church, it says she dreams of having a well-supported clinic, but has a small hope of getting the $7,000 it might cost. But after the story releases, Maude receives thousands of dollars in donations. She uses the money to open the clinic she's been dreaming of. She calls it simply Maude Callan Clinic. She continues working at the clinic until she's in her 70s. She retires in 1971 after training hundreds of midwives and having delivered somewhere between 600 and 800 infants. But even in retirement, Maude isn't one to put up her feet. She begins doing volunteer work, including delivering meals for those in need. In the early 80s, reflecting back on her life, she says, I've seen so many people in so much need, and there's so much that needs to be done that I've decided within myself that I was going to make some effort in order to help them live a better life. Today, her niece Juliet works as a registered nurse in South Carolina. Maude taught her how to check someone's pulse at just five years old, telling her, Great job. One day, you're going to be a good nurse. Juliet is one of the many women inspired by Maude carrying on her legacy. Now that you've heard this story, I totally recommend checking out that photo essay from Life magazine. The images are incredible. It's kind of hard to find, so we'll put a link to it in the show description. Uh, I love that story. I hadn't heard that story about Maude Callan. Had you? Yes, I actually uh, discovered it because I was looking at the permanent collection of the Carnegie Museum of Art. And I saw these photographs by W. Eugene Smith. And so I just started looking up more about him. And that led me to the photographs of Maude Callan. I love the research trails you go down. But I had a research trail that I went down while we were I would love to hear in it. between for the podcast because we were talking about snails. I was I had learned that um, snail shells, some twisted in a clockwise direction and some spiraled in a counterclockwise direction. And I didn't uh-huh. know why. And it turns out it's because of a missing gene. What? Yes. When um, when snails mate, um, sometimes there is a gene uh, mutation that is passed on uh, to subsequent generations, and that explains the anti-clockwise shells. Wow. Mm-hmm. Scientists found this out um, by using a gene editing technique in a particular pond snail. Snails, you're pretty cool. <laughs> Snails, you can come to my garden anytime. I don't have a garden, so don't come. You'll be sad. But you can come hang out with me. Hey, it's time for the credits. But first, let's read some reviews. Here is one from ARIC303. And they say, Gil and Diana bring a really relatable personal angle to STEM. They really made the topic engaging and relatable, and the interview was stellar. Sticking around for the history trivia at the end was well worth it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Thank you so much. Thank you, 303. You are (laughs) friends with me. (laughs) Oh, here's another one from R Squared 52. They say... 
Gillian's... Oh, this feels embarrassing. No, uh, read Gillian, it. Read it. A, a Gillian's interview style was so approachable, she asked well-informed questions that the guest wasn't anticipating. This is a fresh take on the interview podcast formula. I can't wait for the next episode. Oh, oh I'm so... Pr- I know you're embarrassed, but I'm so proud. I think that's great. <laughs> Thank That's very kind, R squared 52. I really appreciate that. Hey, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We might read yours on the show. Also, even if you just want to say hi, you can do that. I mean, we might not read that on the show, but we will see it. Every review and rating helps the show. So, hey, we'll take it. (laughs) This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. And we get research assistance from Catherine Seifer. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.